afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to Notre Dame Stadium. Zivikowski trying to get to the outside. He has blockers in front. Time for Zivikowski. Belong to beat. Shakes it off. To the five and touchdown. And now it is down. It is over. And the Irish have knocked off number one Clemson. Brady Quinn looking. Pump fakes. He rolls to the near side. Throws it. It's caught by Samaja. Inside the 20. Inside the 10. He's going in. Notre Dame has scored. Jones is the back. He's got it again. And Jones a letter room. Tony Jones makes a cut. Gets a block. And scores. Is that the play that will seal the playoff bid for Fighting Irish? What's going on, everybody? Welcome to Sons of Saturday. I'm Tyler Wojak. He's Luke Smith. And this is a very special edition of the podcast because it's our 100th episode. It's honestly a little hard to believe that we've reached this milestone, but this feels like a great time to thank all of you who have been listening to us on the podcast or started watching us on YouTube this past season. This past, what is it, three years, Luke? Two and a half of doing the show. Been a lot of fun. And we really appreciate all of you who have joined us along the way. Uh, Luke, I, I'm just saying personally, I don't think either of us could have predicted we could reach this point when we started doing these in uh, in secret way back in 2019, yet here we are. Yeah, I guess when you take those into account, then it's probably closer to like 120. But yeah, 100 like publicly released, which does feel very odd, um, but three full seasons, I guess, which is crazy and yeah, uh, thanks to everybody that has listened. I honestly would probably question, I don't know what's wrong with you for putting up with this for three years. Half joking there, but I uh, appreciate it nonetheless. I know. There's times when I'll meet people and be like, oh, yeah, listen to the show every episode. Love it. And uh, part of me is like, really? Why? Why? <laughs> Do you listen to us two idiots ramble about Notre Dame football constantly and realize that this means probably far too much in our lives and you choose to join us? What does that say about you? No, I'm just kidding. Uh, we do really appreciate it. And uh, it, it has been a lot of fun. And given that it's the centennial edition of Sons of Saturday Irish, we wanted to make this one special. And in doing so, we got some help from a couple great guests. First, Luke and I are going to catch up on everything we missed over the past couple weeks because it was a lot. I mean, <laughs> the last time we recorded was right after the USC game, and so much has happened between now and then. So we got to catch up on all that. Then we're going to be joined by uh, recruiting analyst Kevin Sinclair from 24-7 Sports and Irish Illustrated to do a deep dive on this year's recruiting class. Now that we're a day removed from National Signing Day and everything is finally set in stone, thank God. Uh, We went like 45 minutes with Kevin, and he had a ton of great intel, so we're excited to share that with you guys. Then we got another great friend of the program, Pete Sampson from The Athletic, to come on again. And we covered a whole bunch of topics with him. We reflected on Marcus Freeman's first year as head coach. Talk some NIL and Transfer Portal, and we even reminisce a little bit on those 05 and 06 teams. So we'll get to all that, but first, a quick word from Roback. Shop game-changing activewear with Roback. For those who crave activity, use the promo code SUNSND to get 20% off your next order in the entire store at Roback.com. Roback's been an awesome partner for us all season. They recently gifted us a sweatshirt, a couple quarter zips, and the Shamrock Polo, which was really sick, and, and I can't recommend it more um and i would really recommend to all of our listeners to check out their apparel again at roback.com the promo code you can use to get 20 percent off your next order is sons nd at roback r-h-o-b-a-c-k.com okay let's let's just go over all the things that have happened since uh our last episode 
First, it was announced that Notre Dame will face off against South Carolina in the Gator Bowl, and we will talk a little bit about the Gator Bowl with Samson, but we'll probably go a little bit deeper on that after Christmas to do a full game preview in that one because it's going to be an interesting one. The quarterback for the Notre Dame Fighting Irish this season, Drew Pine, he transferred from Notre Dame to Arizona State one semester shy of graduating, and he will not be playing in the bowl game. Speaking of transfers, cornerback Jaden Bellamy transferred. He'll play at Syracuse. And tight end Kane Barong also entered the portal. And Michael Mayer and Joe Alt were named first-team AP All-Americans, but yet somehow Michael Mayer did not win the Mackey Award, which is given out to the best tight end in the country, although I think we need to start adjusting the description on that award because it's, it's kind of a joke at this point. Um, and Mayer and Isaiah Fossey were consensus All-Americans. So those are just a few things, Luke. What else did we miss? Yeah. Uh, also, in addition to that, Joe Alt just missed consensus All-American status. He was named a first-team All-American by the AP and second team from a number of outlets, the AFCA, Sporting News, um, FWAA, and Walter Camp. Um, Michael Vinson, how about this? American Football Coaches Association, first ever first team All American at Long Snapper. So that's something. And Jarrett Patterson, who played out of position this whole year for the betterment of the team, earned a second team nod from the AFCA as well. Um, yeah, a lot happened. That USC game does feel like a really long time ago. And so I guess when you wait that long in between episodes, that'll, that'll happen. A lot will happen in the interim. Then Michael Mayer and Foskey both opted from the bowl, or opted out of the bowl game. They're entering the NFL draft. Notre Dame did pick up a few transfers out of the portal for next year, including Virginia Tech wide receiver Caleb Smith, first team All Ivy punter Ben Krim from Penn, and kicker Spencer Schrader out of USF. That is for next year. On the recruiting trail, we got all kinds of news. Four-star running back prospect Dylan Edwards decommitted from Notre Dame for Colorado and new head coach Deion Sanders just one day after Marcus Freeman and Dylan McCullough did an in-home visit at his house. That is just tough. Um, early signing day for the class of 2023 came and went, and Notre Dame signed 24 prospects. That was too short of the 26 who were verbally committed. One, Jaden Lamar, running back, he flipped his commitment to Oregon. Uh, and then the top prospect in this class kind of did the same. Peyton Bowen, if you haven't heard, told the Notre Dame staff he was going to sign with Notre Dame on Tuesday night, committed to Oregon during his signing day announcement on Wednesday, then promptly decommitted from Oregon, and then ultimately committed to Oklahoma the next day, all in the span of like 36 hours. So that's everything. 26. 26, yeah. 26. That's everything we missed. Uh, and we have only been gone for two weeks. So whole lot, Luke. Where, where do you want to start? Because I can go anywhere with all this stuff. Let's start with the team that we had this current year. Um, I mean, it's absolutely ridiculous that Michael Mayer did not win the Mackey Award. This is old news at this point. But when you look at who's on that committee at this point, too, they don't want like Lee Corso can't spell his own name at this point. So I don't know how he has a vote for these sort of things. Um, and that's not an ageist comment. It's reality. If you've seen him on on game day at all the last three years, he has no business being on any committee that decides anything. So there's that. We love um, Lee too. This is this is sad and it's out of love, but it is it's tough. It's tough to watch. Yeah. Yeah, um, we don't need to get into why or how, but it's and clearly most of the other outlets agree with us because they put Michael Mayer on more first teams than Brock Bowers. So go figure. Um, Drew Pine, just truly a, a baffling decision to enter the portal without getting his degree. I mean, I get that his dad's, 
you know, this loaded guy from Connecticut and he'll be fine. He'll still get his job as a consultant or he can work in private equity without the Notre Dame degree. But it's really just a horrible reflection on his decision making. Like this guy has no pro prospects whatsoever. And I'm saying this like I really I don't care that he transferred. Um, I expected him to do that after the spring, after he got his degree. But it's just really, really shocking to me. Um, And it's even more shocking to me, perhaps, that a Power 5 school actually picked him up. (laughs) Yeah, when when it was announced that Drew Pine was transferring, the timing was surprising. And the fact that he was opting out of the bowl game, was that, that, that was the most insane part of all of this. Because I think you and I both agreed that he was eventually going to transfer. It was not a matter of if, it was a matter of when. And we figured, like most people, that he would finish out the season, play in the bowl game. And even if he were to announce that he was entering the transfer portal ahead of next season, he could have still done the spring semester. Now, it wasn't like he just had one class left and he just had one credit. He wasn't that close. I think he would have had to to do a full semester, but he would have had to complete the spring semester. And theoretically, he could have announced which school he was going to, finished out the academic year at Notre Dame, worked out on his own, and then transferred and then you know joined that team in the summer. That's not what he decided to do. He opted to enter the portal. He he was looking at BYU and Arizona State, which going from Notre Dame to Arizona State, that those are two polar opposites. But when you consider that he was choosing between BYU and Arizona State, I honestly cannot think of two schools with more different priorities and the, a different student body. Now, uh, outside of maybe like... No, actually, I got <laughs> no. nothing. I can't even think of an example. Yeah, it's uh, it's shocking. Look, I hope he does well down there. Um, it's going to be really interesting to see how he plays with an Arizona State team that is going to have a ton of transfers coming, but has been just an absolute disaster the last few years. Um, new head coach. So, in theory, he's going to be working with a lot less talented team than what he had this year. And I think I'm just most curious to see – 10 years down the road, what Notre Dame fans say about Drew Pine, because I think if you looked at his statistics, like you would think, okay, this is actually a pretty decent year, but I've never had less fun watching somebody play football than that guy. And, and like, that's not from a place of hatred. He just, he made football very unfun to watch. I think it was Ty Hildenbrand of the Solid Verbal tweeted something like, someone deserves a pin for whoever has convinced themselves that adding Drew Pine is like a key pickup for Arizona State. Look, Drew Pine really loved Notre Dame. He gave everything he had to to this team and tried and Notre Dame was able to squeeze every last bit of talent out of him and you know, they still went eight and two with him as a starter. He played really well against USC's last game in Notre Dame uniform. I guess I don't know what he expected, right? Like uh, by all accounts, Notre Dame uh, and Tommy Reese and the coaching staff told him that they were going to explore uh, a quarterback in the transfer portal, which means they're going to get a quarterback in the transfer portal. And I guess Pine was so miffed by that, assuming that he was going to be guaranteed the starting quarterback position next year. If that was all it took for him to transfer, like that's just sort of shocking. And it makes me reconsider his confidence, I guess, because like, Look, I know that he said he's supremely confident in his abilities, and every week he says he's the most confident quarterback ever. But, like, we all watched that Cal game. We all saw him moping around on the sidelines. Now, granted, he was able to kind of figure it out in the second half, 
But I don't, I, I, this conflicting headspace with him makes no sense to me. Like, how could you be the most confident quarterback in the world, but yet you can get so down on yourself in one half of football that Michael Mayer has to go talk to you and, like, try to pick you up after you just airmailed another third down play? Like, the disconnect there is just alarming to me, but he's going to Arizona State. He's going to be playing under Kenny Dillingham, who's a good coach, very young coach. Did pretty well with Bo Nix. So I, I guess we'll just have to wait and see, but... Of all the Notre Dame transfer quarterbacks, like, I mean, when Everett Golson went to Florida State, Malik Zaire went to Florida, those are just a couple that I'm thinking of. Like, this is by far the one that I'm most interested in watching play out. Yeah, I'm just more interested to see if he brings the peaky blinder cap, <laughs> uh, the Jeff hat down to Tempe. I think he'll fit in really well down there. Um, anyways, uh, best of luck to him. Again, no ill will, but I also am really glad I don't ever have to see him wear a Notre Dame uniform again. So the guy who he replaced, who is now replacing him at quarterback, Tyler Buckner, is uh, projected to start in the Gator Bowl. And again, we'll we'll go more in depth on that next week, but it does seem like he will be the starter. And uh, I'm super excited just to be able to get a glimpse of him again because it felt like we were robbed of a just a, a, a full year of him, a full year of his development, and it'll be exciting to see him back out on the field and hopefully he's able to just stay healthy in this one. But it'll be good to see him. Um, all right, what else we got here? Because there's there's been so much. I feel like we got to get to the Peyton Bowen thing, man. Because it is, it's dominated the coverage lately, and I know it's certainly annoyed you and I. But how are you feeling about it now that finally, at the time of this recording, he's signed, sealed, and delivered to Oklahoma, and we can finally put this behind us? I'm pretty glad he's not coming to Notre Dame, to be honest. And it's not because his talent wouldn't be of use, but if you're that just indecisive. Um, afraid of hurting people's feelings, trying to please, and in the end, you just cause more problems for yourself. You're that immature. Like I know these are high school kids we're talking about, but that to me is a kid who's not ready to go off to college. If like if it really was just this difficult for him to change three schools in a 26 hour span, um, and let's not even talk about the fake hat move he pulled yesterday after being committed to Notre Dame. Now, I know he came out and apologized for everything that he did. I don't fucking care. Um, I, I He'll be a very good player. I have no doubt about that. But I think it would have been very hard for him to regain trust in that locker room if he somehow did come around another name. I mean, I saw some of the commits, Drake Bowen, Braylon James, basically just saying, like, yeah, loyalty means nothing, just kind of like dying laughing emojis when he did commit to Oklahoma. Like, he lied to their face. So – um, kids clearly got some issues he needs to work out. Um, everything else around this whole thing was just bizarre. So <laughs> where you, you have the Oklahoma football and soccer programs tweeting out pictures of his girlfriend who's going to Oklahoma to play soccer, just like kind of grooming behavior. Yeah. These are underage kids. Let's not forget that. I um, want to get to that, but quickly, what was your breaking point, I guess, for lack of a better term? At what point were you like okay, I don't even want Bowen to come to Notre Dame because, like I said earlier, right after he does the hat thing with Oregon, it came out pretty quickly that he was actually still reconsidering and that Notre Dame was still an option. And we heard that he was talking with people at Notre Dame about potentially coming back. Like, what was the point for you when you're like, nah, I'm done with this? I mean, honestly, probably like, Probably like a month ago. Um, to be No, because like the fact that he was still taking all these visits and then he went to Oregon and just like this kid, like it's it's the dumbest thing in the books like or just like in this world of recruiting where somebody says they're committed to somewhere, 
but I haven't made my final decision yet. I'm still making, you know, other visits. That's like saying, okay, I'm dating this girl, but I'm also fucking other people. Like, that's just, that's stupid. Okay. Like that's, that's not, you're not committed to anything. Um, so I, I don't know. That just kind of rubbed me the wrong way. I would have been totally fine if you just decommitted and just taken official visits, like do what Keon Keeley did. Okay. Um, but the way he strung it along, it's just a really poor way to handle things. And like, I'm not here to critique some high schooler, but when you do that to like the school that I graduated from, I'm going to hold it against you. So that's just how I feel about that. I never understood why he didn't just decommit. I know Notre Dame has the policy, or at least Marcus Freeman has the policy that if you're committed to Notre Dame, you can't take official visits elsewhere, but he should add a new rule or like an amendment to that policy that if you take like 10 unofficial visits to the same school that basically counts as the same thing because that's exactly what Peyton Bowen was doing. Like he could drive from his place in Guyer, Texas, go to Oklahoma. He's doing it every weekend. His best friend on the team is Jackson Arnold and he's a five-star quarterback who's committed to Oklahoma. And yeah, like you mentioned, his girlfriend is committed to Oklahoma to play soccer. Like I understand the, the ties to the school. That's not what we're upset about. The thing that was odd to me was he was doing all these weird outwardly like flirting with other schools while he was still committed to Notre Dame. Like the official visits or the unofficial visits rather was one thing. He would also wear like he wore an Oregon headband for one game and he had like Oklahoma bracelets or Oklahoma wristbands and stuff that he'd wear during his high school games. There was never one point during his recruitment that I can remember where he was like, or at least not in the later phases where he was like outwardly pro Notre Dame and outwardly excited about his commitment to Notre Dame. And we kept hearing that like the Notre Dame coaching staff was still optimistic and behind the scenes, he was telling him all the right things. But then you've got Tom Loy of 24 seven sports who was saying that like after the whole hat thing, he called Notre Dame's coaching staff and was very apologetic, said he felt bad he shouldn't have done that. And then he said the exact same thing to Oklahoma. So, like, it's all lip service. Like, you know, when you're in this position and you have all this attention on you, which he, by the way, loved, and, and he, he liked to manipulate it a little, which, you know, what power to him. Like, he's the one in that position. He can do it. But when he gets this kind of pushback, I don't really want to hear, like, oh, well, like, he's just a kid, all this stuff. Like, no, he was doing this on purpose. He liked to get a rise out of the fans, and, and he was toying with them all along. The reaction by a lot of people was like, hey, that's kind of fucked up. And you know what? It was. Like, I think that's fair to say. Yeah, um, and it's, again, why I, I don't really want to follow recruiting at all, um, just because I shouldn't. I, I, I like just these weird factors that all lead into this. I was actually reading something earlier today that was like talking about how Notre Dame got close with all these big guys, and it was comparing it to under Brian Kelly with big guys, and I had never heard any of these names. And I, when I looked them up, they were all guys that are like my age or a couple of years younger. I'm like, yeah, I was a lot better when I just didn't know anything about recruiting. Um, and I would like to go back to that because there's no point in like ultimately getting worked up over any of this. However, this was such a public debacle um, that it was pretty hard to ignore. And frankly, um, it was one of the most just ridiculous things I have seen uh, in collegiate sports. Yeah, so let's talk about what happened today after Bowen commits to Oklahoma. And and you mentioned the Oklahoma football Twitter account. If you're not aware, if you're not on Twitter, and I feel like sometimes you do this where we just assume everyone is seeing the stuff that we saw. So Bowen commits to Oklahoma. The Oklahoma soccer Twitter account posts a picture of an incoming recruit 
who just so happens to be Peyton Bowen's girlfriend. I don't think maybe they put an emoji, but there was no other context. I think, oh, it was just a smiley face emoji. Then the Oklahoma football Twitter account replied to that tweet with like the love hands heart thing. So basically, the two official accounts of the Oklahoma soccer and football teams were publicly championing a 17-year-old's relationship because it made their football and uh, soccer programs better. And it's so absurd saying it out loud. And I think about the context of like what my high school relationship was and just like how looking back, you're like, that was so inconsequential to the rest of our lives. It is so ridiculous that a school would publicly leverage that relationship and champ it it is so weird and i know recruiting is weird but this is by far i think the weirdest little turn loop i don't even know what to call it but it was so bizarre and i think even oklahoma fans recognized that that was just super weird are you sure because i saw some replies saying she's our with ou capitalized girlfriend now um so yeah, I, don't, I don't know, I don't about, know about that i did not see that. uh gr- Groomer sooner, that's grooming behavior. It is. Those are minors. It's fucking weird. And whoever is running the social media accounts at those schools should be investigated. I will leave it at that. And yeah, it just was one of the strangest things I have ever seen. And everything you said in your description, while accurate, made my skin crawl as we're sitting here. So, yes. I I do. I'm with you. I did reach the point where I was like, you know what, dude? He shouldn't come to Notre Dame. And And it was honestly after... The, the whole signing day fiasco. I hate whenever students do like the fake pump thing with the hat where they like put one on or lift it up or whatever. I don't think that that has ever really gone that well yeah, for players. Shocking. You know who the first one to, the first one to ever do that was? No. Cliff Alexander, biggest bust of all time potentially in college basketball. I did not know. He was the he first really one where he hit. like put the hat on and threw it. He was going to do it with Illinois and then because uh, he was a Chicago kid. Yeah, he. I don't think he. I don't know if he ever lasted a full season in the NBA. So, um, just a note: karma seems to get you back when you pull that sort of shit. And 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 when you consider the context too, that the night before he did that, he had literally told the Notre Dame coaching staff that he was going to commit there. He was telling other recruits in the class. That's been reported. That's documented. That's out there. That's true. To do all that, and then ha- the Notre Dame staff is watching that recruiting announcement, and they see him pull that. Like you're not faking out just the people in the audience. You're faking out the head coach, the people who you've hosted in your own home who have been recruiting you relentlessly for years, really, and who have formed these great relationships with you. Like, I just don't understand the benefit. Who is that funny to? Like, who is who laughs? And this might be just us being like old men yelling club, but I don't think that's the case. Yeah, I would love to see a video of the Notre Dame coaching staff seeing that video because um, I imagine there's like a broken projector screen in the Goog or something after that. Yeah, and, and we talked about a little bit about this uh, more with Kevin Sinclair. But yeah, let's get to our interview with Kevin Sinclair, recruiting analyst uh, from 24-7 Sports and Irish Illustrated. Okay, Kevin Sinclair from Irish Illustrated and 24-7 Sports uh, joins us now to do a little signing day recap. This is Kevin's first time on the show, so if you're unfamiliar, he's one of the best recruiting analysts in the business, and we're pumped to have him on just one day removed uh, from the start of the early signing period. I know it's been a very hectic couple of days, but how have you been, man? Oh, it's good. You know, I, like I was telling you guys just before we came on here, um, when you're a recruiting reporter, you don't really know what's going to happen on signing day. There's going to be some drama or that sort of thing. And 
Um, you know, signing day itself, the, the, the faxes start coming in at seven. So you got to be ready well before that. So not a whole lot of sleep, I guess, the last few days, but you sort of push through it. And, um, you know, it's in my opinion, it's a really good class and it was a lot of fun to cover. Um, Marcus Freeman, I mean, as anyone who follows Notre Dame recruiting knows that he was able to reach a lot of the type of prospects that, you know, the Brian Kelly area, they just weren't. And so, you know, covering Notre Dame under Brian Kelly for years and then suddenly covering under Marcus Freeman, you start seeing them land guys like a Jaden Greathouse or a, a Jaden Osbury, who we just didn't really see Notre Dame get those guys previously under the previous coach. So, you know, it was a really fun class to cover that way. Um, and it's just going to be even more interesting going forward. Yeah, no, I, I can imagine. Now, we will get to the guys who did sign with Notre Dame, but I, I think we have to start with the Peyton Bowen saga because he's the five-star prospect and his recruitment has really dominated the headlines. We've heard a lot about all the different twists and turns over the past several months, but even more so over the past couple of days. Could could you kind of just take us through the key events that transpired in his recruitment starting on Tuesday night, the day before signing day? Yeah, I mean, going way back to like a year and a half ago when he was offered, I, I talked with him and his teammate who were offered that day. And both of them both to me seemed like they were, you know, perfect fits for Notre Dame. And they were also like elite defensive backs, especially Peyton. Um, Denton Geyer is a really prominent program in Texas where their best players typically go to Texas, Texas AM, Oklahoma, and the sort. And so but again, like I was just saying with Marcus Freeman, it was like this reach is it's bigger now, right? And maybe maybe we'll get this kid. And they did. And he's the kind of kid who just um there's certain kids who when they meet Marcus Freeman, they're gonna just love him and really have a lot of interest in Notre Dame. And he was he fit that category. And then obviously, you know, he moved on to commit to Notre Dame. I was always wondering though, as I'd mentioned, uh Denton Geyer, similar to Jaden Greathouse's school, Austin Westlake, there's sort of a pool but a half dozen schools in Texas that are real prominent programs. They typically send their recruits to Texas, Texas A&M, Oklahoma. Maybe they're not sent there, but they typically choose those types of schools. And I always wondered what, you know, if he was maybe going to sway some of those schools. And in this new NIL era, it's not just about the interest in the school. There's also, you know, there's money involved in there as well. Right. Um, fast forward a little bit more, his teammate, blue chip quarterback, Jackson Arnold, uh, he committed to Oklahoma. Right. Uh, he's got his girlfriend. He's going to Oklahoma. There's lots of, like I said, with those types of schools, sending a lot of kids to Oklahoma. He knows a bunch of people there. Doesn't know anyone at Notre Dame, you know, outside of Marcus Freeman and the coaches. But the coach is very, very close with them, not just Coach Freeman and Coach O'Leary as well. Um, very, very close. He, he loves those coaches. He does. But with those sort of connections to Oklahoma, the NIL sort of involved as well. So he's visiting some other schools. He had visited Oregon once, which was kind of surprising at the time. Oregon's certainly not down anywhere near Texas or anything. He sort of started to wonder. And then it became more of a, I'm committed to Notre Dame, but I haven't made my final decision is sort of his line. And it's like, okay, so Notre Dame's his top school, but he's maybe not really a commit here. Maybe we should sort of look at this differently. And we and we did. Started looking at it sort of differently. And it became almost like I got to recruit him all over again. And Notre Dame did a really good job. They ended up getting a last in-home visit just recently here. And uh, what we were hearing was that he was likely to choose Notre Dame. It seemed like yesterday during signing day, he really was undecided when all of a sudden he found himself on the podium and he had to make a decision. Why he chose Oregon the way he did and turned down Notre Dame the way he did, I mean, I don't know. But it, it, by 
you know, it was only a few hours later where we started hearing, you know what, he's, he's wavering big time already on that decision. And now everyone's kind of back in it. Right. And I think in the end, just sort of the, the, the pull to Oklahoma, the people he knows there, NIL implications, and ended up being Oklahoma. And it's, it's a shame for Notre Dame's class overall. And I'm sure we'll get into it some more, but this class is a lot deeper with really, really good four-star talent than really any Brian Kelly era class we saw. That's a dozen years. Um, that it's not as big of an impact as it would have been if Notre Dame, let's say, for example, had a five-star recruit in its 2018 class and they decommitted, that would be crushing, right? But Notre Dame has a lot more talent that's pretty close to that Peyton Bowen range, if not just as good as that Peyton Bowen range, that it's not this um, you know, major dagger in you, uh, so to speak. So that's kind of how that rolled out. It was an odd one. It was really difficult to track and cover, and there was so much drama that we sort of heard that we reported or heard and not reported that's been – yeah, it's it was a wild one. And we're not used to that because with the early signing period, most classes are kind of wrapped up by the end of the summer. And so we're not used to the signing day drama, but we got it this year. So at the end of the day, what do you think was the the determining factor that led Bowen to go to Oklahoma? Because, I mean, I, when he did the hat ceremony, Oklahoma's hat wasn't even out there. Yeah, I mean, I think what it came down to, and it sort of, I've sort of explained that, it's sort of a combination of a couple of things. Number one, his ties to Oklahoma. He took a whole bunch of visits there. I believe that quarterback is referring to Jackson Arno. I think that's kind of his best friend, you know, his girlfriend. He's got all these connections with people who are also going there. It's close to home. I think there were some NIL implications in there as well. I think that the combination of those things just sort of, you know, landed him there. Yeah. And I get that. And, and I, Late this late in the game, decommitments just sting a little bit more because Notre Dame doesn't have the chance to rebound, but Sometimes Notre Dame is the beneficiary of a late flip, and that was the case with the four-star quarterback, Kenny Minchie. Minchie had been committed to Pitt for months, and he opted to flip after taking an official visit uh, to, to Notre Dame when they were playing Boston College. I, I, I think it took everyone by surprise just because he flipped, and then he was committed almost or just over a week later. So what was it that led Minchie to, com- uh, to want to come to Notre Dame? Yeah, so you know, there's a few things there. Um First of all, he's a really, really good fit for Notre Dame. I think one thing that's important to note is like he goes to a private Catholic school, right? And so Notre Dame itself was always like a really good fit for him and made sense for him. And I think he had interest in Notre Dame, you know, long ago, uh, before he had committed to Pitt. Okay. Um, what happened really was after the it became clear that Dante Moore was not going to be coming to Notre Dame, you know, they had to obviously extend a few more offers and they did. And it was Kenny Minchie and it was Austin Novosad. And that was in the you know, kind of mid summer there. And right away, it seemed that what we were hearing was Minchie was sticking with Pitt and, you know, they had just produced a good NFL quarterback or, you know, high draft pick that made sense. And Austin Novosad, he did visit Notre Dame. He was committed to Baylor. Both of those quarterbacks were committed elsewhere. Of course, Novosad, he took the visit, seemed like Notre Dame had a shot there, but he ended up sticking with Baylor. We saw him do a signing day flip in Oregon, but the thing is, he didn't end up, yeah, he didn't end up going to Notre Dame, of course. Kenny Minchie, though, although it was kind of a just a firm no at first, he kept in touch with Coach Tommy Reese. Coach Tommy Reese kept in touch with him throughout the fall. And I think if you're a quarterback and you look at Notre Dame, you look at what happened this year, you know, Tyler Buckner started the season, they went 0-2, 
he was injured and then Drew Pine came in. You see these young, talented receivers, all, you know, Deion Colsey and Lorenzo Styles, Tobias Merriweather. They're only in their first or maybe second year of eligibility. And you, if you're a quarterback, you're like, man, I, I have an opportunity to play there, right? And uh, I think he saw that. I think he just built a better relationship with Coach Reese. Pitt didn't have the greatest season. And I think as time went on and he got to, you know, got to know Coach Reese more and more, taking that visit became more enticing to the point where eventually it was almost like he sort of caved, okay, I'll I'll come visit Notre Dame. All within that window, those couple weeks around that visit, Notre Dame managed to seal the deal. Um, you know, he's a really good quarterback prospect. I was just talking about this recently. There's kind of two things that are most important with a quarterback in terms of actually getting on the field in college and then having success. And number one is simple. It's accuracy, 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 accuracy. It's hard to coach up accuracy. A lot of that's natural. And number two, the mental aspect, you know, to read coverages, make smart decisions, the football, pick up the playbook and then apply it. And that's where he, that's where his strong points are. He's his accuracy is very, very, very sharp doesn't have as much arm strength as maybe some quarterbacks, but his accuracy is fantastic. And then when you talk to any of his trainers, his coaches, anyone who knows him, that they say his strongest point is that mental aspect. He's a very kind of calm, quiet, observant kid who's very, very, very bright and works and works and works at it. So to me, it seems like he's really got those two most crucial components accuracy and then the mental aspect so personally i i think this is a fantastic pickup at quarterback and i think he's just sort of a rung below the you know dante Moore, jackson arnold but he's not too far off and you know projecting quarterbacks is almost a fool's errand it's a crap shoot but he's looking pretty sharp to those two components that i talked about yeah, we actually did a segment on that uh, over the summer where we basically just went through all the top quarterback commits over the past 10 years, basically. And mm-hmm. we were just basically saying hit or bust. And we were being pretty conservative with the hit measure. And even then, it was still like an under 50% hit rate. And this this class especially, it looks like it's loaded at the top uh, with the quarterbacks. You got Archie Manning, Dante Moore, who Notre Dame was obviously looking at, and Jackson Arnold. Jackson Arnold and Christopher Vizina. So you said that he's a little bit below. What do you think it is that's holding him back from those top guys? Is it just the arm strength? Yeah, I mean, arm strength is 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 one thing. I think with Dante Moore, he's got those components as well. He's very accurate, and um, he's just, he's a bright kid. He can reads defenses very well, and makes those smart decisions, right? But he's a bit bigger than Kenny Mitchell. You know, he's up over two hundred pounds. He's a bit, a bit bigger. Big, strong kid, bit more arm strength. But Minchie, again, he's got that pretty consistent accuracy. And again, real bright kid. That part, that whole mental aspect is what's so hard to predict, right? Some kids, they seem like they're going to be a sure thing. We've seen it so many times with five-star quarterbacks. It seem like they're a sure thing. And they get there and, and the, you know, whether it's the, the combination of the the pass rush and the speed of the game that might overwhelm them just enough to where they fail. Right. And some don't, it's really difficult, but everything that we're kind of hearing from like trainers, coaches, people who know him best, he's got a really high likelihood of pushing, you know, kind of pushing through that. You kind of hear about like freshman wall 
or freshmen in, in their first camp, they do really well and they kind of hit that wall. He seems like a kid who can kind of push through that. And again, these things are really hard to predict, but I think he's just, just slightly below some of those top, top end quarterbacks. So at one point, Notre Dame had three running backs verbally committed, but ultimately only one right. ended up signing. That's Jeremiah mm-hmm. Love. Uh, he's the fifth rated running back in the class, according to 24-7 and number 68 player overall. If Notre Dame was going to get one of the three, it seems like Love was clearly the one you would want the most. How was Notre Dame able to land him over schools like Texas A&M? Yeah, so that wasn't um, that wasn't like an easy win. Like that was a recruitment they really had to battle uh, battle for him. First off, I just want to say, like I was saying, just you know, three four weeks, like three weeks ago or so, before Dylan Edwards to decommit, I was saying to you know some guys I work with or you know other colleagues. Like I just just saying, I do not understand what Notre Dame is doing at running back here. Because you got to think about Chris Tyree can return. You've got Logan Diggs and Audrey Castamay. They're only sophomores and they're great football players. You have Jadarian Price, who some people think he might be the best of all of them, and it's unfortunate he was injured this year. You got Jabron Payne. That's five running backs all returning. Most of them with most of their eligibility uh, left. Um, right. And so that's five. Now, if you were to, if they would have hung on to all three and signed all three, that'd be eight scholarship running backs. Now, I just, I just didn't understand that. I never, never did. And I always felt like one or maybe two would be the right number. But anyhow, getting to your point, you know, Jeremiah Love, like the, the day he got offered, I, I got on the phone with his coach and, you know, I just loved his talent. And he's, he's a, his speed, his combination of speed and, like legitimate, like receiver, like receiving skills. Um, really exciting. But what I learned when I got on the phone with this coach, there's a bunch of Notre Dame supporters like in that program. He plays at probably the best football program in his state, CBC. Great coaches. I mean, they're state champions, right? They, they just won the state title. They won it the year before. And it's a private Catholic school. And you can never overlook that. When Notre Dame's recruiting kids from private Catholic schools, they might have a really, really good shot there, right? It's a similar atmosphere. And then on top of that, I learned he has like a 4.2 or 4.3 GPA. He's got serious aspirations outside of football academically. Um, and just talking with his head coach, he was, you know, he's, he was just sort of saying, you know, long before he even started getting offers, and I, I knew he was a college talent, uh, I was always thinking this kid's probably going to end up at Notre Dame if they offer him. And now they have and you know, he was, that's on the record now, but at the time it was off the record. Um, so I just sort of knew that they're going to have a real shot here. Now, you know, he visited Notre Dame and had a really good shot at that point. But, you know, there's a lot of interest in other schools like Texas A&M. I think we all understand the NIL implications of a school like that as well. Um, Michigan as well. But, you know, I think there's people around him really liked those other schools too. But I think Jeremiah Love just truly loved Notre Dame more than any of the others. And when it came down to it, it was solely his decision. And that's the one he made. And man, he's dynamic. I I watched him in the state championship. The game regulation fourth quarter ended at 28, 28. He scored all four touchdowns. And this was against a a defense that had multiple like four-star recruits, um, including actually a five-star defensive end. And he was just running circles around them, scored all four touchdowns. Overtime comes and who wins scores a winning touchdown? Jeremiah Love. Of course. And he's, and when he's on, he's on. And he's one of those guys when he gets on a roll, it's, he really gets going. And um, his ability to make, make you miss his, like, 
the way he can just hit the brakes and and reverse field, he's really something. And then they get him in the backfield and they run these wheel routes where he's his speed is dynamic and he can catch the ball outside the framework of his body and stride. And yeah, man, there's a lot to like there. Yeah, you touched on his versatility there and, and how dynamic he is. Is there a player who his game reminds you of at all? Yeah, absolutely. CJ Procise. Um, you know, remember CJ, he came to Notre Dame. He was a safety initially, but he was had that athlete label. And then they moved him to receiver. And he, he showed some good talent receiver, but he slowly like surely moved kind of like to slot and then to the running back position. And then he had, I think it was like four, three, nine speed, somewhere in there. Uh, real fast, obviously we saw, and he was very quick and shifty. And he was, if he'd had a longer career at Notre Dame, he, I think he would have, you know, just been dynamic. And when I say longer, I mean, if he had come in and plugged right in at running back instead of shuffling around from safety to receiver. But anyhow, in that short time, he was playing running back at Notre Dame. He was great. And I think Jeremiah loves, you know, comparable, but I think he, he has a chance to be even better, right? And he's got those receiving skills that I talked about, Procise had. He's got very similar speed. I think he's in like the 4-4-2 range. Once you get into that sub-4-5 speed, you're flying. And he's got that. And then um, at running back, I think he's got to sort of increase his physicality. But, man, can you run the football? He's He's dynamic. Yeah, and it seems like he's going to have uh, a chance to make an early impact because of his skill set as a receiver. But as for the true receivers, um, this looks like the strength of this entire recruiting class. Notre Dame was able to sign four players, yeah. including three four-stars, and a pretty underrated three-star in Caleb Smith. Caleb Smith being the high school one, not the new guy. But we'll, get to the, uh, we'll get to him in a second. This has obviously been a major position of need for Notre Dame. Luke and I have lamented the receiver position for a while and credit to Chancey Stocky, who in his first year as a wide receiver coach at Notre Dame really delivered a strong class. It seems like all four of these guys are a little bit different, have different skill sets. So could you take us through this group and uh, basically how Stocky was able to, to deliver so strong? Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm really high on these receivers and um, I'll start by saying this in, in every class, you know, as a reporter, you, in, you, you meet all these recruits, you interview them and you get to know them, their parents. And every year there's like a, a couple kids who really stand out to me in terms of being super, super mature, super self-aware, really intelligent, like just really special kids, right? You meet them and it's like, wow, man, kid must have incredible parents or whatever it might be. And like last year for me, it was like Benjamin Morrison and Holden Stays and Emil Wagner. Those are real special kids. And in this class, for me, it was Braylon James and Jaden Greathouse. They're just fantastic kids. Uh, I would say even especially Braylon James. So my confidence in them, just not as good football players, but being able to go to Notre Dame, handle the academic rigors of it, and then develop and be great football players is really as high as it gets in terms of high school recruits that way. But Jaden Greathouse, I mean, he plays at like arguably the best high school football program in, in Texas and one of the best in the country. And starting as a freshman in that program is just like unheard of. That just doesn't happen. But uh, he started as a freshman and he had big time yards and they won a state championship. Same thing as sophomore, junior, oh, you know, rush over a thousand receiving yards each year. Anyways, he is, you know, right around 6'2, 215, 220. So he's got a unique build. And he is so physically strong. Those contested balls, he wins those. His it's a lot, a lot of people don't really consider it, but 
getting on the field as a freshman, you have to be able to block, right? There's been a lot of really talented freshmen we've seen who are great receivers and they could use them, but they can't block. And if you can't block, you can't get out there. Well, he's as good as he gets physically blocking his route. His routes are outstanding. And he just has that, you know, it factor about him. And I think he's going to be ready to play right away. I think uh, I've also heard that he might actually be in the could be in the running for slot receiver. You know, he's big and physical and and he's got really good route skills. So he's special. Rico Flores, he's got some similarities to Jaden Greathouse. He's not as big, but he's very, very physically strong. And, and, you know, when it comes like blocking and beating people for contested balls, um, he's real special that way. But he's a he's just a kid who plays with so much just sort of aggression and physicality, like his hair's on fire, people like to say. Excellent route runner. And he's a guy who's just, you know, beat all the records in his school, which is a really known pass-heavy school. Braylon James isn't quite as developed as those two in terms of, like, getting on the field right away, but he has more potential than all of them. And he ran, you know, he clocked a 4-3-7, I believe it was, last offseason – and I'm just telling you, if, if you guys were to sit down and talk to all commits one by one right now, afterward, you'd probably be saying, hey, man, that Braylon James is really something. You know, he'd probably be the one who stood out to you. He's uh, he's a special kid. Like I just keep saying, I can't say enough good things about him. And you just look at him and he looks like a go-to receiver. You know, he's got long legs. And when he breaks, when he cuts it loose, he it can outrun you. So he can be that deep threat. And Caleb Smith, he's just a really unique one. He is a slot receiver, kick returner, who is also a point guard and a center fielder. He's got a whole bunch of special stuff going on there. He's a great gadget play guy, screens, pop passes, kick return, punt return. Um, Tim Priester, my my coworker, he is uh, really good at – he's a very good uh, talent evaluator. And he says that, you know, Caleb Smith is incredible in disguising his routes – really difficult to cover. So he's got some special things going on. We don't know as much about him because I started covering Rico Flores when he was a sophomore and great house, not too far after Caleb only, you know, been really keeping an eye on him for a couple months, but you know, he's got four, three, nine speed, almost as fast as Braylon James. And he's just got a lot of that, that those extra things going on with the, the screens and the gadget plays and jet sweeps. So he's going to be an interesting to watch. The coaching staff thinks he is like ridiculously underrated. And I one last thing I'd add is just Chancey Stuckey, his background at Baylor ended up paying off big time because he met and started recruiting Braylon James, Jaden Greathouse, and Caleb Smith back when he was at Baylor. So when he came to Notre Dame, all three of those guys already knew Chancey Stuckey. They loved Chancey Stuckey. But now they're selling a, bet, a school, you know, uh, very several rungs above. And they're all great students. So, hey, what a win for Notre Dame. Yeah, absolutely. No, that, that makes a ton of sense. Uh, now, as Tyler mentioned earlier, Notre Dame landed another Caleb Smith. Uh, this one, a grad transfer wide out from Virginia Tech. His yeah. stats don't jump off the page, but we have some friends who cover the Hokies, and they said that he was criminally underused at Virginia Tech, and this is a really good pickup for Notre Dame. How do you feel about the pickup? Yeah, you know, it's an interesting one. First of all, first of all we've seen Notre Dame have lots of success with these you know, jumbo receivers or you know, big body receivers, Miles Boykin. And, you know, not, he's not like a Miles Boykin or Chase Claypool, but they know how to use those bigger receivers, right? Tommy Reese certainly does. And, you know, I was thinking about it. It's going to be, um, 
Uh, I guess was, I would say it's kind of tricky to project exactly where he fits in and all of that. But I'm thinking, you know, they're losing Michael Mayer, right? And you think about what you lose in your pass game from losing Michael Mayer. Well, Mayer split out, you know, he'd play out wider in the slot. I think they can use Caleb. I call him, I propose we call them Caleb Smith Sr. and Caleb Smith Jr., by the way. I like That's that. That's what I'm really like. <laughs> Caleb yeah. Smith Sr. I think they could probably use him similar to how they use Michael Mayer in the passing game. I'm not, not saying he's Michael Mayer. That's a special player. But he's, you know, he's listed 6'2", 221. But I'll be damned if he doesn't look like he's 6'4", 235. Am I wrong? I mean, he just looks yeah. bigger than that. And he plays bigger than that. And so I think they can sort of use him in that almost like a detached tight end kind of role. But who knows? Maybe they just sort of play him the same way they play, you know, any receiver. It's going to be interesting to see. But, you know, they need veterans. Like, they don't. The 2019-2020 classes, they signed a bunch of receivers. They all either moved to different positions or transferred. So they don't have those older receivers. They won't have them next year. They have you know, almost all underclassmen, but with a few juniors. So you need a veteran guy. So it makes sense to me. Apparently, he's, just a, he's a great kid and a good fit for Notre Dame. And, hey, man, we'll see what happens. But that was a good pickup. So Marcus Freeman has made it pretty clear he wants the program to be driven by the guys in the uh, in the trenches and Notre Dame has a great track record of producing great offensive lines and tight ends. And this year they were able to land another great offensive line class and another four-star tight end in Cooper Flanagan. And plus Charles Jagasaw now with the Peyton Bowen decommitment, he's the highest rated player in the class. And Notre Dame has signed, I believe five offensive linemen each year in the two classes prior. So, you know, odds are, all these guys aren't going to play. And even Cooper Flanagan might not play that early on because it's just two loaded rooms. So if you had to guess, uh, which of these five offensive linemen, we'll lump uh, Flanagan in there as well. Who do you think will have the best careers at Notre Dame in, in two pretty crowded position rooms? Yeah, difficult to answer that. But, you know, I would either say Charles Jagasar or Cooper Flanagan. Now, I'd start by saying that like if I, I we wrote a piece as like as a staff where there was one column it was like who's the most underrated player in the class and I chose Cooper Flanagan and um, Cooper is I watched a lot of De La Salle games just like be a live streamer I was able to get access to their game films and he's the kind of kid where like his highlights look great but if you watch full games like you know several full games or watch he you you see that he's actually a lot lot better than his highlights sort of suggest now. Um, he is, you know, he's a big kid he's right around six, six, maybe a little less, he's about 240 and man, can he block, right? And he's got that same, um, eye of the tiger, I guess, so to speak, just vicious aggressiveness that we sort of saw in like Tommy Tremble and then in Michael Mayer. So he can play that traditional tight end role. There really is two tight end positions you know, you have your traditional guy, and then you have your guy who's more of a detached tight end, right? He's almost more like a jumbo receiver. But like he can play kind of both. And that's what I love about Cooper. And then his he's never had a good quarterback in his program, and they're a run-heavy team. He's, uh, he's a very good receiver, Cooper is. And he's uh, I think he's underrated that way. So I think a lot of people look at him and just go, oh, he's this great blocker and just sort of an average receiver. Well, no. I think he's a great blocker and a great receiver. So I would rank Cooper Flanagan up in like the top 125. I think he's one of the best tight ends in the country. 
Um, that's why Alabama and LSU are recruiting him heavily for months after he committed to Notre Dame because they think so too. So, but yeah, Charles Jagasaw, I mean, there's a, there's a bunch of like six, seven, 310 pound offensive linemen out there, but to be great, you have to have something special and he has it and it's uh, balance and body control. He's a champion wrestler, right? So Man, he's a big, strong kid, and you can't wriggle out of his grasp, and he wants to finish. He's also like really, really, really intelligent, great student. So very bright kid, wrestler, six, six and a half, six, seven, three fifteen, whatever he is. Man, I like how all of that adds up. So not easy to get on the field on the offensive line at Notre Dame, especially when you're a freshman. So I don't know if he's gonna play right away, but Cooper Flanagan, Charles Jagasaw. Those ones are those are fantastic recruits. Flipping it to the other side of the ball, Notre Dame looked like it could have had a historically good defensive line class, and they had Keon Keeley committed, and we're still in the running for Jason Moore, who ended up at Ohio State. That being said, still a pretty solid group led by Brendan Vernon, the four-star out of Ohio. How do you assess the defensive line group? Yeah, I think they're short a defensive end. I think whether it was – okay, I'll start by saying this. Bukhar Treyor, when he committed – he was a, a bigger kid at the time. Like he weighed more, he was heavier. And I thought this kid's probably a strong side defensive end, maybe even grow to a three tech, but no, he leaned out and he's real agile and mobile. He sort of got more fluid and loose since he sort of seemed like he sort of leaned out a little bit. And now I think he's a weak side end. That's just my opinion. He could grow into a strong side end, but we'll see what they really needed was one more. They basically needed like, another trail uh Bukar in their class or someone similar you know better than him whatever it may be so i feel like they they that's the one position i feel they fell short a little bit in this class i think armel mukum uh he's you know he's a project but he's got real special like first step quickness like he comes off the snap and punches you in the mouth in a hurry but he's very new to football and he's definitely gonna be a project but Big kid, he's six three and a half, two fifty five, and like I said, he's got just that quickness. He can really move. He just doesn't really know what he's doing out there yet, right? So it's going to take some time to coach him up. Devin Houston is an interesting one because his skill set kind of reminds me of Myron Tagovailoa Amosa a little bit, but instead of being like six two, he's six four and a half, and instead of being like between like two sixty five, two seventy five, he's two eighty five already. Um, and he's got this really good spin move he does inside. He's really good with his hands. He's a lot more like polished uh, technically than you would expect from a kid who just came down from Canada not long ago. Like he's he's real sharp that way. So you know, I I like him three tech. But the problem here is with the class is I just think they're missing that defensive end because I think Mukum will be an inside player. Brennan Vernon I think will be like a three and a five inside player Devin Houston could be a nose tackler three tech they're just missing that one defensive end we don't know how Aiden Gobira or uh, Josh Burnham and them are going to pan out because it's just too early so a little bit nervous about like the future of defensive end there for the next you know in the next few years but certainly got some great talent there I'll tell you Treor he was injured a fair amount in high school so there's not like a ton of film but I won't be surprised at all if he you know just plays way above his rank and he's got an older brother who plays in the NFL. He's got some good genetics going on there. He's really dynamic. 
I want to talk about Brennan Vernon a little bit because we saw his stock slip a bit during his senior season. He goes to Menor, Ohio, which is a huge public school in uh, the Northeast Ohio area, big football powerhouse where Mitchell Trubisky went to school. And at the time of his commitment, I believe he was a five star according to, to some services. And then now, uh, according to 27 or 24 seven, he's the 18th ranked defensive lineman. And uh, in full transparency, transparency, I watched two games of his in full because my cousin was playing against him. Now, granted, my cousin's team runs like a five wide pass every play down. So it's not really great for a defensive lineman. I think Manor was playing basically eight to nine guys deep every play because the only thing that they would do is pass. And in those games, both those games, Vernon was essentially a non-factor. Now he was picking, he was picking up some double teams and stuff like that. But I was sort of surprised at how little of an impact he made on the game, at least on the stat sheet. So what do you believe attributed to his slip in the rankings? And I want to recognize that those are only two games. I wasn't locked into every game he played this season, but I feel like uh, I had to at least point it out and, and try to get a sense of it. Yeah, so he is a classic case of like a freshman phenom. When he was a freshman in high school, he was, you know, like 6'5", and he was like 225. He was leaner, and he was he was a weak side end, and he could really move. And he like... He wasn't the best player on the field, but he was only a freshman, right? And it looked like if he just continued, um, he was going to be dominant, right? By the time he was a senior, and so he was a five-star. And playing as right a away. freshman at, at Menor, right. I don't want to cut you off, but this is a huge deal. Right. Like Menor is a massive school. Huge I think deal. they have over 4,000 students, so it's very rare. Yeah, so similar to like what I was saying about Jaden Greathouse playing, it was like almost a you know very rare thing for a guy to even play, let alone play really, really well, which is what he did. You know, over the years, he got larger and larger to where all of a sudden it's like, okay, it seems like he's a bit of a tweener, like defensive end, defensive tackle. And okay, well, which way is this sort of going to go? And then he's sort of dropping out of that edge category and more into the interior where there's more prospects in that category. And then, you know, I think basically he's just sort of become a three technique player, right? And, um, you know, he's still a like high four-star prospect, but when they first make those rankings when they're younger, there's only a few prospects that are even in defensive end. So you saw it with Drake Bowen too. He was a five-star recruit, but at that, that time when they were ranking recruits, there's only a small number of linebackers. So some guys are going to be really ranked high, but later, you know, as time goes on, months later, that a number of linebackers triples or quadruples. And that's, so that's a little ranking sort of move around a little bit. And so, you know, yeah, he, he did drop in the rankings, but he's really changed physically. Um, I think maybe he grew differently than maybe some analysts thought he would way back then. Um, you know, now he's like, you know, 270 pounds at six, five, and he's an interior guy. I think Brandon, he, once he develops better, technique and pass rush skills and pass rush moves his game will really take off i know i was talking to someone who knows him well and knows the coaching staff at his school and that and they just felt like he hadn't really been taught a lot of you know of those skills pass rush techniques you know like i was just talking about with devin houston how he has that this awesome spin move he uses inside doesn't seem like brennan's really been taught or developed a bunch of those things yet so he's had a lot of success but a lot of it's just been on pure, just natural ability, natural strength and, and skill. I think once he de- they develop him at Notre Dame, 
he's such a big guy. He's long. You've seen him in person. He's a big dude. I think they develop him the right way in the strength program, develop his technique. He can really take off. But like I said, I don't think he has a lot of those technical things down yet. But once he does, he could be a force. I can't believe it's taken us this long to bring up Drake Bowen, uh, the four-star <laughs> linebacker out of Indiana. And he appears to kind of be the leader of this class, somebody that Marcus Freeman referenced by name in his opening statement on signing day. We see how active he is on social media, and it seemed like he was on campus every home game. But can you take us behind the scenes a bit and tell us how important he is to this class? Yeah, it's like this. Like if you're a if you're a reporter and you go and interview, let's say this was like five months ago and you know, the class was only half or three quarters full. And you would go to interview a prospect who wasn't committed yet, but he was a top recruit. So let's say it was like Charles Dragosar or someone. <clears throat> They'll tell you that they know Drake and they hear from Drake all the time and they really like Drake. And that's because he'd insert himself in all of these recruitments, you know, um, like a Christian Gray before he committed. I remember speaking with him and he knew Drake. I talked to Drake all the time and he's a great kid. He's a likable kid. And then also, he's got the, the talent and the rankings to sort of back it up. He's a blue chip recruit. He's an All-American. So he's kind of like, like in a different way, but like Marcus Freeman is a great recruiter because he's just a genuine guy that everyone just really likes. So you can't, how do you not like the guy? He's, you know, you can talk to anyone and they're going to be interested in him and, and like him. He's very charismatic. Drake had some of the same thing going on where he's, you know, when kids start to think about Notre Dame after they've been offered, they're thinking of Marcus Freeman. Okay. I like the coaches. And I also like the, the commits there too, because I know Drake and he's a great kid and he'd stay on them. And so, like I said, every top recruit knew Drake, loved Drake, be in touch with him regularly. And because he lived nearby when they'd visit Notre Dame, he'd come down too. And so he's with you during your visit and he just did a great job. So, this past season, we all saw Benjamin Morrison have a ton of success, uh, which is very rare uh, for a cornerback at Notre Dame. And now they signed Christian Gray, who's the top-rated cornerback to commit to Notre Dame in over a decade, and Micah Bell, who is another very talented cornerback prospect. And this is a position where in the past, I think Notre Dame would just be happy to, to sign a four-star. Now it looks like they're able to sign difference makers at the position in back-to-back classes because even though Jaden Mickey had his struggles last year I think there's still hope um, that he has a ton of potential at Notre Dame so could you tell us about the job Mike Mickens has done and how he's been able to land these top prospects at, at a position that just Notre Dame hasn't had a ton of success with in the past yeah I think you know the first thing that comes to mind with Mike Mickens and you're asking me about how he's a good recruiter well you know him Everyone likes Marcus Freeman and they get to know him right away. Well, Mike Mickens and Freeman, like they're, they're teammates in the same high school. They have this long pass together. They coach together at Cincinnati. So they're almost kind of like, a, it's hard to explain. That story is sort of told to all the cornerbacks. Like, hey, we're Notre Dame. We're offering you Marcus Freeman's the head coach. I'm the cornerbacks coach. We're former teammates, came from the same school, you know, same area, you know, that sort of thing. They're able to sort of sell that. And, um, Mike Mickens is just a, another really likable guy, but he also had a lot of success at the position himself. He's just like Chancey Stuckey and like Al Washington and like Marcus Freeman. He's a young guy. He's cool. Recruits like him. If you talk to a recruit, he's being recruited by 20 schools and there's three or four coaches that stand out to him. Mike Mickens will be one of those three or four coaches. And that's what matters. You're going to make that lasting impression. You know what I mean? 
And Mike Mickens is able to do that. And when I, you know, uh, Carson Hobbs, when he committed to Notre Dame in the 2024 class, that was a big point. I talked to him about that. And he had visited Notre Dame for uh, the Clemson game. He watched Benjamin Morrison pick off two passes. He's thinking to himself, who is this kid? Oh, my God, he's only a true freshman. Maybe I can do this, too. So they're able to really sell that as well. So Mike Mickens, like, again, he had his own great football career. He's got this connection to Marcus Freeman. And then look at he's turning in. He's, look, I brought this kid in. He was a low four-star. Now he's one of the, you know, best cornerbacks maybe in the country, best cornerback in Notre Dame. He's a true freshman. You saw what he did against Clemson. They got a lot to sell there. And Mike Mickens is, like I said, he's, he's a cool guy. Groots like him. We'll start to wrap up where we started uh, at the safety position. By all accounts, Notre Dame's coaching staff saw the writing on the wall a little bit with Peyton Bowen, and that's a big reason why they went after Ben Minich and Brandon Hillman. Maybe it's because the spotlight on Bowen overshadowed these guys, but they seem to be two of the lesser-known players in this class. What can you tell us about these two prospects who, for the most part, have kind of flown under the radar? Yeah, it's I could pull up the tweet from a long, long from last January and show you. Uh, it's sort of a long story, but I'll try and tell it in short. Notre Dame is recruiting uh, safety Malik Hartford, okay? And he's an All-American. He's going to, he signed with Ohio State. And so I went to do a big film study, and I watched about six Lakota West High School games to watch Malik Hartford. And when I was doing that, Hartford was great and all, but I kept noticing his safety teammate making just as many, if not more, plays than Hartford, an All-American. So I, I, after seeing, you know, several games and I just kept noticing the safety making plays, I looked them up in Max Preps, his jersey number, and I see it's this kid, Ben Mick. And I was like, man, he's really something. And I sort of dug into him a bit. I, I think he, he either didn't have any offers at the time or if he did, it was like one and it was like Toledo. And and so I tweeted something about him it was last January, I believe it was, and I just said, Malik Hartford's great, but everyone should really know about his teammate. And then that offseason, he just got more serious about football. He ran track, and then he won, like, gold in 100 meter. He had this crazy time, and he put on, like, 10 or 15 pounds of muscle. And then I had heard from him because I had reached out to him at that point. I heard from him in, like, May, and he told me, hey, Notre Dame just invited me to their camp. Do you think I should go? And I said, well, hey, man. Like, even if you didn't end up getting an offer, like, that's something you'll never forget for the rest of your life. Like, I would recommend going. And anyways, he went, he just, the, you look at him and you think, okay, he just looks a little too small. But, man, he can run his open field tackling abilities, outstanding. Every single game, and he plays top-level high school football in Ohio, you'll have, you know, an interception and three pass breakups and a touchdown catch, or you'll have, you know, a forced fumble and a bunch of pass breakups and a punt return touchdown. Every single game he makes those plays. So how his open field tackling will be ability will be when he's tackling a guy like Logan Diggs in the open field. We'll see. But the the number one thing with Ben and why he's such a great football player is he's a brilliant kid. He's super intelligent. He knows his coaches just tell me that he he just can run the defense himself as a high school kid. So, you know, he got an offer. I believe he got an offer from Harvard, I think, which tells you, you know, a lot about him. And then Brandon Hillman, I mean, you guys have seen his film. As far as the just like 
at being at safety, the ball getting snapped, and him finding the ball and breaking on it, and that speed that he has to get to the ball and make the tackle is outstanding. How much time is going to take for him to learn coverages and really learn the defensive backfield and them have enough confidence in him to put him on the field? That's tricky to say because he's always been a quarterback. This is his first year ever even playing safety. So tricky to say, but man, if you really just look at his speed and the, his dynamic quickness, his suddenness and his acceleration, I mean, he has like top 100 caliber athleticism. How it'll translate to safety, tough to say, but it's really good that they got him in lieu of losing Peyton Bowen. Um, I think he could be a, a really, really good one. Plus, they got a Don Schuler as well. So they were able to, you know, despite the loss of Bowen, they were still able to recruit the safety position really well. So last thing before yeah. we let you go, uh, and it's something you've written about plenty, especially as of late, and it's the five-star dilemma that yeah. Notre Dame has been, has been dealing with and, and continues to deal with here. Because, look, there this is a really strong class for Notre Dame, and I, I don't want to negate that. But in order to compete with Alabama and Georgia, they, they need to start closing with these five-stars. We all know it. And, I mean... <laughs> I think Alabama signed, what, like 14 guys in the top 100 yesterday? It, it's ridiculous. And they're a different machine. They're not going to close that gap in a year. Um, but it's just the reality of the situation. And as we start to look ahead to the class of 2024, who are some five-star prospects you think Notre Dame has a realistic shot to land? And really, this is more of a big-picture question. What does Notre Dame need to do in order to have a chance to actually close with these guys uh, when it comes time to sign in the dotted line? Oh boy. Yeah. Tough question. I know that's a heavy one. I know that's a heavy one to close it with. I'll I'll give it my best shot. Okay. Um, First things first, Marcus Freeman is a head coach now and he has to improve recruiting outcomes. And I wrote about it in my piece on five stars the other day. There's two things he has to do. Number one, increase the volume of four-star prospects and decrease the volume of three-star recruits. Okay. He absolutely did that. So he nailed that first step. Second step, increase those five stars and top 50 recruits. Hasn't quite got there yet. And looking at why that is, how frustrating for Notre Dame fans. All these years under Brian Kelly, he's just not an ace recruiter. Notre Dame finally gets its guy who's capable of signing five stars. And now there's this NIL NIL market where teams are able to sort of essentially exploit a loophole and inject tons of money into the equation. Um, The kind of money that, you know, people who really want to be at Notre Dame simply can't turn down type of money and things like that. So how they're going to be able to overcome that is really difficult to say. And I, I sort of pose this question to sort of answer that question and why it kind of can't be answered right now. It's sort of a few questions. How many five-star recruits is Marcus Freeman be able, going to be able to get serious interest from and just attract to Notre Dame? Number two, how many is he going to be able to actually land commitments from? And number three, of those five stars you commit, how many are going to, number one, receive those type of NIL deals or offers? And how many are going to take the bait? Really impossible to say right now. Is there going to be any more new guidelines that sort of pop up? Tough to say, right? Some kids, you know, Notre Dame does have its own NIL, right? And, um, you know, some kids, they're five-star recruits, they, they're not going to take that sort of bait. I think CJ Carr in the end will be a five-star recruit. I have a hard time seeing him decommit from Notre Dame. 
Um, another recruit in the five-star range to answer your question, Ryan Wingo, wide receiver from St. Louis. He's been to Notre Dame a few times. CJ Carr has a bit of that Drake Bowen going on where he's really, really good at recruiting prospects too. And he's, you know, really well connected to Wingo. So I'd keep an eye on on those guys. There's another recruit who I think is a five-star-ish recruit. I think it's a great fit for Notre Dame, really good student, all of that. But he might be a tough pull. He's got some family connections to Florida and all that. Elijah Rushing is a weak side defensive end out of Arizona. He's not quite at the level of Keon Keeley, but he's kind of the Keon Keeley of the 2024 class. Just not quite as talented, but five-star-ish. So those are a couple I would keep an eye on, but I'd also caution this. Um, like this time last year, I think Charles Jagasai, I mean, he wasn't nearly ranked anywhere near where he is. I think he might have even been unranked at this point. And now he's like even a five-star, I believe, with one network at least. Or, you know, So who the five-stars are right now is going to be completely different from what they are six months from now, right? There's going to be some guys that are might even be unranked right now that will be five-stars later this cycle. So I think that group's going to expand because it's going to change. Um, whether they're going to be able to sign more than CJ Carr in the five-star category, poof. I think I outlined why that's kind of impossible to answer. So yeah. that's about all I got. Well, look, Kevin, this has been great. We kept you longer than we asked. So we really appreciate the time. This has been awesome. Uh, you can follow him, again, at 24-7 Sports, Irish Illustrated. He's been all over signing day. We really appreciate the time, man. So take care. No problem. It's fun, uh, fun talking ball with you guys. Thanks for having me on. All right, thanks to Kevin Zeclair for joining us on the show. Uh, a lot of great things to take from that. What really stood out to you? I think, and this was touched on a little bit, just the depth of Notre Dame's class um, that they brought in, even without any kind of clear you know, five-star talents, just the amount of four-stars brought in, that blue-chip ratio being as high as it is, is so critical. Um, and we've seen it in the past, right, where – one guy goes down, Notre Dame doesn't have a shot in a big game. Julian Love obviously comes to mind. I, I think just the key here, obviously you want to be in these fights for these top-end big-time talents, but just getting depth and bringing in more and more talent is so key. Um, I, I think that's that's really what's most critical to me and what was one of my biggest takeaways coming out of that. Yeah, I would agree. I'm really excited about this re- receiver class. I, I think that came through and um, it's a major position of need for Notre Dame, and it's it's great that they were able to sign four really talented prospects. When it comes to the five stars, I know there's been talk now because of the Peyton Bowen thing and because Notre Dame missed out on Dante Moore and Keon Keeley that they should just stop. I, I don't think that's the case. It's kind of like in the NFL drafting a quarterback in the first round. The hit rate might be below 50%. That might be true. A lot of teams take quarterbacks in the first round, and they whiff, and they bust, and whatever. But guess what? All the best quarterbacks in the league are first-round picks. Josh Allen, Patrick Mahomes, Matthew Stafford just won a Super Bowl. He was a first-round pick. So even though it sucks, you swing and miss on a few of them. You got to keep shooting. You got to keep trying. Hell, Michael Mayer was a five-star. I think we saw why. And, um, you know, it's unfortunate. It's going to get harder with NIL and all that stuff. But I do think, and I I like the Notre Dame mindset and the mindset of this coaching staff, that they're just going to keep trying, man. They're going to keep swinging. They might miss a few times, but eventually I think they're going to start landing some. And you know what would really help with that is if they start putting up some more, you know, college football playoff caliber seasons. I know this past season wasn't that at all, but I think if they're able to sack those up against with guys in this class, I think the the five stars might actually start 
coming to South Bend and not ditching us at the altar at the very last second. Yeah, or they just wait like 10 years for Jimmy Clausen's sons to grow up and hope that they're five-star QBs um, <laughs> and they'll just want to come to Notre Dame. They need Brady Quinn to have a son too. I will say that. He only has daughters right now. So just they need one of their really good former players to have a really good <laughs> – like some really good kids. I feel like it's that's the basic recipe, and we're just not really executing on that. It's like – LeBron and Cleveland, like the the best chance that Cleveland ever has at winning another championship for the Cavs is if the greatest player of our generation is born in their backyard. Is that it? We just have to start yeah. doing our yeah. own thing. All right, let's talk to uh, Pete Sampson from The Athletic. All right, we had to do something special for our 100th episode, and who better to join us now than Pete Sampson from The Athletic? It's been a long time since we've had you on, man. How have you been? Uh, busy, busy. I was trying to think back to the last time I came on. I'm, I'm guessing Brian Kelly was still the head coach and uh, every, everything was like borderline boring around Notre Dame football. Yeah. I think it was after the Wisconsin game, uh, in 2021 actually. Oh, okay. All right. So yeah. Yeah. After what uh, broke the, uh, all time Newt Rockney wins record then. So yeah, that was, uh, it was a much more, uh, normal time around this program. Yeah, it really was. Um, and now to start that off, I, I want to talk. This probably isn't where you thought I would have started this with, but I was listening to something from The Athletic earlier this week. One of your colleagues, Bruce Feldman, was actually talking about Mike Leach. And this is something that you probably never thought about, but he was talking about how when he would go out with Leach, one of Leach's favorite things to do was talk about which coaches would win in a fight, specifically which college coaches could beat Charlie Weiss in a fight. So uh, this is kind of putting you on the spot there, but do you have any current college coaches you think they could take Charlie Weiss in a fight? Take Charlie Weiss? Uh, yeah, a bunch. Uh, I thought you were going to ask me you could, could take Marcus Freeman in a fight. That might be a much shorter list. Yeah, that list might be in the single digits, honestly. Yeah. Um, but on the topic of Marcus Freeman, we'll get a little bit more serious now. How would you assess his first season as head coach? Uh, I mean, I thought there was a lot of room for growth. Um, I think I've, I've probably written this and th- said this a bunch, but if you're going to hire a first-time head coach, you are baking in growth to his first season, and then you have to give him the space and room to do it. Um, Marcus probably would tell you that he – needed more space and more room than even he would have wanted. Um, the way the season started the Stanford game, I just don't think he saw like that kind of stuff coming down the pipe. But um, I mean, overall, I thought that there were moments in the season where you could see him get better as a head coach, where you felt like he was affecting the game more. Um, and I think like there were two things I wanted to see most out of the season. One, by the end of it, I want to know, can Marcus Freeman do this job? And I felt like, yeah, he showed enough that you, you felt like he could do it. Uh, the other thing was, like, I wanted to see the quarterback play have some long-term growth to it behind Tyler Buckner, which obviously did not happen. So, you know, for a first-time head coach, starting at Ohio State, playing Clemson and USC, and then losing your starting quarterback in week two, I thought thought overall he did a, he did a good job. Like, I wouldn't say that he is, like, pitched a perfect game or anything like that, but... Um, I thought there was enough good that you could feel positive about where things are going. What were some of those moments that you mentioned where you felt like you could see Marcus Freeman really taking strides as coach? I thought that, I mean, the sort of North Carolina BYU games where there was like kind of some middle eight clock management uh, where they did a nice job of it. Um, I thought that the way he handled the Clemson game was, was great. Um, 
you know, they came out and played, played to their strengths and, and didn't ask Drew Pine to do a whole lot. Um, and I thought on like, the biggest one might have been the fact that the season, this sounds weird, but like the season didn't fall apart after the Stanford game. Like I've covered Notre Dame teams where that that the season ends that night in that kind of game. Um, they don't come back from that. Guys lose interest. Uh, coaches are sniping at one another. And that like the fact that didn't happen after that point was was pretty impressive because it's not like the team naturally snapped back into form afterwards. I think Marcus Freeman had to do a lot of good work in the locker room uh, and with his own coaching staff to sort of get things in a better headspace than where they were. Cause I mean, I think it's like, if you remember where things felt like they were after that game, like it was, that was pretty dark. So um, to come back from that, I mean, at that point, I think he was three and four as a head coach, um, which wasn't like a real comfortable place to be either. So that was, I thought this is the way he kept the team together after Stanford might have been the most impressive thing of, of anything he did. Yeah, so it, it sounds like Notre Dame's resiliency and just Freeman demonstrating that he can do this job were probably the most encouraging developments from this mm-hmm. season for you. For the inverse of that, what's your biggest concern about next year's team as we get closer to flipping the calendar and turning our attention to 2023? Uh, I would say that the defensive line would is a concern of mine um you know you lose Foskey Jason Adam Alola I think they, they just are sort of like a talent drop off there um I like the guys they're bringing in but it's not um they, they were sort of able to grow those players up into very good you know in the case of Foskey first team all-american types um you know and then like how he manages the offense like I, I don't think that he's in a position where he wants to change who is his offense coordinator or how he plays offense that much. Um, I think he still wants to be like a power run game type of guy. Um, but, you know, how you manage whatever the quarterback room looks like. I, I think that if there was a mistake that they made, it wasn't taking a, a transfer quarterback last off season. Um, you know, and for Drew Pine, I think Drew Pine got a lot out of Drew Pine, who Drew Pine was, but they, they just need more at that position. Um, so, how do you manage that in the transfer portal over the next few weeks? Um, and then how do you sort of stitch that room back together when you bring somebody in sort of upsets the dynamics that maybe you're, you're shooting for with Buckner? Um, you know, that's, that's head coaching program management type stuff. Um, I wouldn't say that's really like a concern to answer your question directly, but I do think it's, it's a job that Freeman really has to get done and be careful with. You mentioned Freeman's desire to run like a power run game. That's a little bit mm-hmm. old school, and that's one of the yeah. been one of the more interesting things for us fans as we learn more about Freeman. The longer he's been at Notre Dame, is for how however new school he is, however young and dynamic he may be, his football philosophies are actually pretty old school, which has been an interesting clash, especially on the recruiting trail because he's been he's proven to be a great recruiter. He's able to relate to players well and recruits and their families. Maybe that that might be his best attribute as a head coach. But frankly, relationships don't matter nearly as much when a recruit is offered a six to seven figure deal to attend their school, which is so often the case with these five-star prospects. And I think that shows a little bit with Notre Dame's current recruiting class. It's really good, but it lacks some of that five-star talent. But to borrow your phrase here, what is the first next step that the coaching staff and the Notre Dame administration, for that matter, should take to to close that NIL gap between other top programs and put themselves in a better position 
to close on some of these five stars? This this might sound counterintuitive, but I would the first thing I would do if I was Notre Dame is I would get the transfer portal fixed first and then worry about NIL as it relates to high school kids next. Um, I think that it's like if you can't get Dante Moore out of high school as like the five-star top 10 prospect or you can't get Keon Keeley as a five-star prospect, then you have to be able to go into the portal and get an older player established who can come in and help you right away because he doesn't need to be developed um, as much as a high school kid would. Like, if you can't get Dante Moore, figure out a way to get Sam Hartman. That's probably the easiest way I would describe it. Um, Because I don't think Notre Dame is eager or, frankly, just doesn't want to get into the same sandbox as Oregon and A&M, Miami, um, in terms of like leading with NIL. And, you know, I've, I've asked Marcus about this. Basically it's like, if a kid's biggest priority is NIL, um, is that essentially a, a, a flag that you're not getting that kid? And he's like, basically, you know, you, you have to, you have to find kids where NIL is not, um, not the lead priority. Um, you know, can Notre Dame do more with NIL and get more revenue in there for sure? Absolutely. But if you're a kid and your priority is chasing a $500,000 NIL package out of high school, then like Notre Dame's probably not going to, you know, be a player there. Um, unless you look at Notre Dame and say, especially, you know, if you're an offensive lineman, like, well, Harry, he is there and Notre Dame turns out first round picks. And then I make all that money back then. So I would, I think Notre Dame's priority has to be getting the transfer portal up and running better than it is. Um, but I don't think that if a kid wants to max out their NIL out of high school, uh, I don't think that's the kind of prospect that Notre Dame's really going to be in the in the running for wherever Notre Dame lands on NIL, because I just don't think that's where it's going to land. Right. And I think at the same time, wouldn't you say that Notre Dame fans probably need to acknowledge that with some of these five-star prospects, there are other factors outside of NIL. I mean, why wouldn't Keon Keeley want to go to Alabama and play for Nick Saban and become the right. next Will Anderson? Um, why shouldn't Peyton Bowen want to play for Brent Venables and go to school with his best friend Jackson Arnold down there? It seems to me like NIL is almost becoming a bit of a built-in excuse for Notre Dame fans, at least. Uh, and I'm just not mm-hmm. fully sure that that explains it all. No, it doesn't. It's like, I mean, Keeley in particular is a, is a great example because – Alabama has like proof of concept of if you come here as a top recruit, you're going to leave here as a first round pick or a second round pick. Um, Notre Dame doesn't have that sort of track record of development on top of just like winning all of the national championships. So that, that I can get like when Notre Dame, if Notre Dame is losing guys to Oregon, um, maybe less so Oklahoma, like there are NIL schools out there. Like when I see, Notre Dame get into recruiting fights with AM or Oregon or Miami. Like if those are the schools that these prospects are taking visits to that Notre Dame wants, like I think Notre Dame's gonna be like, okay, um, this is a little bit uncomfortable. Um, but like look, Jeremiah Love's four star running back, top under prospect, looking at Oregon, looking at AM, like Notre Dame overcame NIL to get him. Um so it can be done and I, you know, Notre Dame, while they don't like put these figures out publicly, like I believe that Kyle Hamilton and Michael Mayer probably were 
easily six-figure prospects at Notre Dame while they were at Notre Dame, not prospects coming out of high school. So it's not like if you're a dude at Notre Dame, you can make money. And that's sort of Notre Dame's pitch right now. But that requires a certain amount of faith in the prospect to be like, all right, I'll wait on that. And if I'm really good, um, I'll forgo like the instant cash here to earn something later. But I mean, it's like if you're a five-star prospect, I think Alabama and Georgia and those places would be attractive, whether NIL was a, was a factor or not. Yeah, exactly. And you mentioned Keon Keeley. And if you look at all the guys who decommitted from Notre Dame or just really even the guys who committed, his recruitment might be one of the more tame ones uh, compared to the rest. And Luke and I have been pretty open about the fact that we don't get too invested in recruiting coverage, at least until signing day is near, because so much changes all the time in recruiting and what you hear. And really, until a player signs in the dotted line, who really knows what to believe? So this year, Notre Dame fans have had to deal with all the ups and downs of the Dante Moore and Peyton Bowen sagas. And, and for everyone listening, we're recording this on Tuesday night before signing day. So we don't know where Peyton Bowen is signed yet. But even even now, like it's been a really up and down recruitment. You've been around the program for a while now. What are some of the most bizarre recruitments you've had to cover? Oh, my God. Um, you know, this. Stefan Tuit Aaron Lynch combo in 2011 was something that just sta- still stands out to me because I remember I was at a basketball game when of Notre Dame basketball game covering it when Brian Kelly's plane had to turn around um after I think Tuit had flipped from Notre Dame to Georgia Tech and then Brian Kelly went to the home and flipped him back to Notre Dame <laughs> the Aaron Lynch one I remember interviewing him at the Army All-American Bowl and this he was I think he had he had flipped to Florida State and then he was reconsidering and I I was he wanted to do early enrollment and Florida State semester had already started and uh, like this year down here like can you can you still go there and he's like yeah you're right I guess I'm going to have to go ahead and decommit I got to talk to my mom about this and I'm just like man this this is this kid is just <laughs> all over the map. I mean, Deontay Greenberry flipping to Houston on signing day, um, which was broken to me by T. Shepard's dad, um, which was another weird recruitment. So it, uh, I feel like you, at some point, you feel like you've seen everything with recruiting, but I'm not entirely sure that will ever be the case. I think there's always another totally bizarre story just around the corner, but you're right. I mean, like the Keon Keeley one was was fairly tame by total bizarro recruiting standards where you know decommitments are highly highly dramatic you've suggested that notre dame be more aggressive in the transfer portal to make up for misses on the recruiting trail but as we know that's sometimes easier said than done at notre dame but i think you've also said that notre dame seems to have become more open to taking transfers specifically undergraduate transfers what can you share with us to that end that leads you to believe that the transfer portal will be more of an asset for Notre Dame moving forward. Well, I think that if you think about like how mature a high school kid is versus how mature a 22 year old would be, like, I think you're looking for different things at that point. You're looking for, okay, how can I, I'm looking for like finishing school to go to the NFL and Notre Dame, I think can be a good sort of brand builder and sort of athletic development piece to that puzzle. Um, Notre Dame has done a good job getting, high, I think, higher level transfers, and I think that that needs to continue. I mean, I think they found they they can find fit better 
with the portal as well. I think the guys that you've seen Notre Dame take have all kind of clicked in um, or like more likely to click in. Like, you know, somebody like Ben Skoranek, probably not somebody that Notre Dame would take out of high school, but they watched him for three years or four years. Um, they know exactly what they're getting. He comes in and he delivers it and then, you know, goes on to he's playing in the pros now. So I just think that it's like you're getting an older, more mature player and Notre Dame seems to attract more kind of mature guys so i think that that's part of the reason that i think it uh could suit notre dame better yeah ben skoranek wide receiver number one on the defending super bowl champs just like yeah, we right? predicted when he when he signed to go to notre dame now what did you make of drew pines landing spot um talking about a quarterback you used to cover uh, did it surprise you at all because candidly i'm not sure i fully expected him to land at a power five school even one like arizona state who has a new coach and certainly had a share of struggles over the last few years I was surprised. I thought that he'd probably be a group of five um, quarterback next year. So, yeah, Arizona State surprised me. I mean, I think leaving before graduating for Notre Dame was a, just floored me, um, regardless of where he went. Um, I always expected he would he would depart after the spring semester when he you know competed for the job. They bring in somebody else. You know, maybe he's third behind whoever the grad the transfer is and Buckner. Um. And then he would exit, but um, to do it when he did before the bowl game was, I was just like, whoa, the, the timing of this is totally off. Um, but I I mean, he's got supreme belief in his own abilities um, and, you know, wanted to try it at the power five level. So I think that's, I don't know how many other power five options he would have had, um, but uh I'd be really interested to sort of see him play there, even if it's, you know, at 1030 on a Saturday night on ESPN two, like, you know, at, at, I, you know, how he plays against Oregon or USC, um, you know, the PAC 12 after dark time slot, like it, uh, you know, how he plays without Michael Mayer. Um, I'm, I'm fascinated to sort of see how all of that shakes out. Cause I mean, Arizona state, it's a team that is like totally turned over by transfers, um, you know, outgoing and incoming. So it, it's uh it's definitely a volatile spot. Yeah, Michael Mayer and one of the best offensive lines in the country too. Like Arizona State might have had exactly one of the ten worst. As for the quarterback who he replaced and now is replacing him, uh Tyler Buckner. We haven't mentioned Tyler Buckner or the Gator Ball really at all. I know that it's a little hard for all of us to believe that he's fully healthy, but based on everything we've heard, it seems like he he is or and he's gonna be the starter for the Gator Ball. What are some realistic expectations for Buckner in the ballgame? I, you know, I, I think to play more of a Drew Pine style game, uh, and I mean that like not run first the way that he was against Ohio State and Marshall. Um, you know, I like to see him sit in the pocket and throw it around a little bit. And, you know, it, it should be a run first game plan, but that doesn't mean Buckner needs to be the guy running it. That's sort of what I mean by that. Um, you know, can he throw timing routes out of the pocket? The kind of stuff we didn't really see a whole lot. Um, and that's, I mean, what I'm most interested in, the reason I'm most interested in the Gator Bowl is because of Buckner and seeing him also play behind an offensive line that's like in, in form. Like the offensive line he played against at Ohio State and Marshall was bad. Um, Jared Patterson didn't play against Ohio State. He was on one foot against Marshall. They just weren't in a good way. Um, the running game didn't play well. I get, I know they had Mayer then and they don't now, but um, I feel like Buckner is going to play in much more of a 
like a real offense now. Um, whereas I think the first two weeks of the season, the first week was like their their offensive game plan was built to keep CJ Stroud on the sideline, and the second week just nothing worked. Um, now it's like he's got he'll have some space to like actually be a real quarterback opposed to just like kind of having to function within a box, which I felt like he had to do in the beginning of September. Yeah, that makes sense. Now, uh, before we let you go, let's reminisce a little bit. What was it like for you covering the 05 and 2006 Notre Dame teams? When we were kids, Brady Quinn, Jeff Smarjan, Tom Zivikowski, those guys were like superheroes to us. But those teams only finished 19 and 6. And when you compare that to today's success, I'm not sure fans would be nearly as high on them as, as they seemingly were at the time. So what was that covering those teams like for you? Hmm. I mean, the 2005 team, I, I feel like is probably one of the most fun football seasons um, of the last 20 years. So, you know, certainly since I've been on the beat, um, it was. It's weird looking back on that season and realizing they were nine and three because um, it felt like a team that actually went 11 and one in terms of like how much fun I think the fan base had with that with that season and Brady Quinn and, you know, you know, everything that went into the year with the Bush push and the craziness of that, uh, that fall. But, um, you know, 2005 was kind of, it was almost like 2012 where you had like all this unexpected success, you know, everyone's sort of in love with Notre Dame. Um, you know, there are big national stories, sports illustrated, all that, all that good stuff. But then 2006 felt like, almost I don't want to say stale but it just wasn't like it didn't have the same freshness as 2005 did where everything felt new it just felt like it was 2005 part two nothing has changed um and like that that just didn't really carry the day that you didn't have the magic of 2005 so um I mean those were fun seasons like I mean I remember you know the Fiesta Bowl against Ohio State the Sugar Bowl against LSU like those were not national championship or playoff games but they were huge huge games uh and it felt like they had real stakes it was before like you know opt-outs and all that good stuff but um those are really fun seasons to cover um there was it was definitely kind of like uh you felt like notre dame was like oh back at the center of the college football universe and like little did you know they were going to return to the wilderness for about five six years almost immediately after you walked off the field against lsu and jamarcus russell yeah, it seemed like there were stakes for the fans, but now looking back and hearing some stuff from the players, I don't think they – the stakes were not as high for the players in that 06 Oh, Super they had Bowl. a good time down there. Yeah. yeah they had a good time. There. As, no, and that's happened like every – other than the national championship game, I think that happens at every bowl. Yeah, especially every Sugar Bowl too in New Orleans. I mean, yeah. not necessarily just for Notre Dame, but just for any team playing. I know because, I had a good time. Yeah, it's a good time. Um, all right, you mentioned 05 was one of the most fun seasons you've had covering. What were some of the most fun times that you're maybe most fun games, pressers, whatever the case may be? Mm, uh, I am, I'm always very partial to the 2007 UCLA game, which was like terrible football, but like so entertaining at the same time. Maurice Crum Jr. looking like Ray Lewis um, against McLeod Bethel Thompson III. Um, that was a very fun game. I did not cover the Hawaii bowl, but I think that would probably be in my top five games. I think it's might be the only bowl game that I haven't covered, um, in my time on the beat, uh, Oklahoma, um, in 2012 was, that was a very cool moment. Um, 
because it was just like it was kind of like an unexpected success story it's kind of when you felt like the oh man you're like wait a minute this team might run the table um and i i not that the game was great um against wake forest in 2012 but the week and the night after Notre Dame went to number one like i ended up writing like a 4,000 word oral history on just like what that week was like um because it was just no, there was an entire generation of Notre Dame fans who had never lived through Notre Dame being number one, and suddenly it had happened. So that was those were those were pretty cool games off the top of my head. Um, in terms of like good football, that was fun, but also bad football, that was fun. Um, but man, you've it's I've covered a lot of games. Um, but yeah, those those definitely would stand out. Um, heck, I mean, even the Fiesta Bowl was wild last year, right? Like. You felt like you were covering a Disney movie for the first half. Like, oh my God, like Brian Kelly's out of here. They just needed like this breath of fresh air. And then you're you're covering like an avalanche coming the other way. It was um that was that was pretty nuts. So yeah, it's just like those those were all good. I mean, the Clemson both Clemson wins at Notre Dame Stadium were fun. Um I would say, you know, I'm kind of rambling here, but like, you know, the national championship game at Alabama was not obviously a good game but the i remember the pregame being down in the field and how electric it was and thinking like wow if you paid a thousand dollars for a ticket like the vibe in this stadium is worth half the price before kickoff it was it was that loud before the game so there's a i mean those are definitely a handful of them but like it's it's really never a dull moment around here even <laughs> even even in times where i felt like it should be yeah, that national championship was fun for three plays. Yeah, and then it, I, if that, I think it all started going south after that. But Pete, uh, we know you're busy. We appreciate you taking the time, and uh, we'll do this again soon, man. Take care. All right, take care, guys. All right, thanks to Pete for joining us on the show, and that'll just about do it here. But it's great to have Pete on. He's a friend of the program. I'm sure that everyone listening to this also follows his work pretty intently. He's maybe the most known uh, Notre Dame beat writer on the beat. So it's great to have him on. What did you take away from that, Luke? Yeah, no, it's definitely great to have him on. Um, I think, you know, it was interesting to hear him talk about how he thought Marcus Freeman grew as a coach this season, and I think I largely agreed with the sentiment he expressed. Um, and now it'll be really interesting to see kind of how that expands as we go into to year two. And, and um, I also thought the defensive line discussion was interesting as well because that's kind of something that Kevin talked about earlier with he felt like they the, this defensive line class was one short so we'll see what Notre Dame does in the transfer portal uh, maybe to help plug that but that that's interesting to me as well I feel like we should mention this we cut it out from the interview but we did ask Pete about quarterbacks uh, in the transfer portal or not that Notre Dame would be trying to get and the reason we didn't include it is because he taught we talked a little about Michael Pratt who like five minutes after we finished recording the interview. He announced he was coming back. So we did ask. We talked about it, but then it became completely useless for the context of the show. Notre Dame is still in the market for a transfer portal quarterback. We've heard a bunch of different things, um, but I, I think that they eventually will get one. But I did want to throw out there that we we did talk about it. You know. Yeah, it's like speaking it out of existence. But yes, <laughs> I think we we might have jinxed it. Good chance. Um, but. We'll see what happens uh, on that front. Notre Dame is still looking to pick one up. Sam Hartman has been mentioned. 
Now, I'm not really going to get my hopes up for a guy who's not even in the portal yet, although he has been linked to Notre Dame. We'll see. We tried to speak Drake May into existence. That didn't happen, but it'll be something to follow going forward. But uh, next week, we will be back again with our Gator Bowl preview. But, uh, Luke, you got any final thoughts to add before we wrap this up? No, I think that's it. All right, well, I hope you guys have a very Merry Christmas. Enjoy the holidays. Like I said, we'll be back next week to talk the Gator Ball. In the meantime, follow us on social media at Sons of Sat Irish. And again, thank you all for joining us on the centennial episode of Sons of Saturday Irish. This has been a joy, and we can't wait uh, to be back soon. So we'll talk to you then. Bye.